Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com. Well, today we culminate our series, Man Made, in which we have been asking that question, what makes a man a man? And uh, this is kind of fun because this week I received no fewer than half a dozen emails from a lot of you guys who said, have you seen this website, theartofmanliness.com? Have you seen this? Uh, It's actually pretty funny. It's clever, very revealing in spots. It was started by a law student who was frustrated because he saw all these men's magazines as if like all men cared about were like six-pack abs and, you know, bikini spreads and rock show reviews. And he said, Let's get, we need some of the basics here. And uh, so it's very vintage. So it has articles like how to use a straight razor to shave like your grandpa, uh, how to open a bottle with your teeth, all sorts of men's stuff. Uh, it features old-school vintage men's magazines. These are hilarious. The covers of these are amazing. Like, take, in case you're like attacked by like killer lobsters... Man's conquest. Look at man's life. The guy's like saving the damsel in distress in case, you know, rabid turtles attack him, you know. Like in the 40s and 50s, that was, you know, seen as like what's a, what a man really is. And uh, some of the articles are very kind of mad men, like kind of vintage, like five cocktails every man should know how to make. Uh, one of them is a list for the 10 worst products for men ever invented, which includes, of course, the chest hair toupee. I think that's a, a, ni- a nice item there. Sweet right there. You can pick that up at the Welcome Center. There are articles on stuff every man should know how to do, like uh, how to jump from a speeding car. I'm serious. There's actually step-by-step articles. Steve McQueen is kind of like the site's patron saint. and It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but kind of really trades on that manly men kind of cliches, like the kind you see being revived in recent Old Spice ads. Hello, ladies. Look at your man. Now back to me. Now back at your man. Now back to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped using ladies' scented body wash and switched to Old Spice, he could smell like he's me. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on a boat with the man your man could smell like. What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's an oyster with two tickets to that thing you love. Look again. The tickets are now diamonds. Anything is possible when your man smells like Old Spice and not a lady. I'm on a horse. I'm on a horse, you know, I'm the man who wish you man smelled like, you know, guys today, they're a little bit hipper, more ironic, but there is kind of a shortage of reliable role models for authentic masculinity. And, uh, you know, that kind of, you know, a manly man doesn't exactly drip with authenticity, does it? So you see why, like, the art of manliness uh, can be kind of popular, because modern guys gravitate towards anything that's kind of retro and vintage, as if they're, like, searching for some, like, long-lost roadmap for advice and practical tools about how to be a man which means a lot of different things, but guys instinctively know it needs to do with like living nobly, with honor, being someone who can be counted on, worthy of respect, and if not willing to sacrifice for something you know, greater than yourself, 
then at least be buff and, uh, and well-groomed, you know? That's kind of the idea. We all know, you know, manhood isn't about kind of rocking a handlebar mustache or Old Spice, uh, but there's something about looking to the past, to the ancient paths, as it were, for role models and templates of how great men in history have followed to make a great impact. Um, today, what we're going to do is cap our series by looking to the life of one man in the Bible who I think is often overlooked. I mean, everybody knows about the heroes of the faith. People know about, you know, Moses, King David, Jesus, the Apostle Paul. But really, there's one man in the Old Testament who I think engages his culture and leads his contemporaries in a way that is profoundly relevant to men today who kind of want to move past these cliches. His name is Nehemiah, and he was a manly man. He was a man of action. And his story is told in the book of Nehemiah, and I'll invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to chapter 4. The story is pretty simple. Nehemiah was a man who saw a major crisis in his culture, and he was deeply distressed by it. The walls of Jerusalem, his hometown, were broken down. The city gates lay in ruins, total disrepair, and that disturbed Nehemiah because it was the holy city. This was the center of Israel's religious life, and the Jews had kind of, they drifted from loyalty to the Lord, they, they intermarried with pagan nations, they began worshiping other gods, totally compromised their faith. And so what happened is, Jerusalem was overrun by foreign kings, conquered by other armies, and the people went into exile. They'd spent decades in bondage as a slave. God was forgotten. So the, everything is in disrepair. It was very upsetting to Nehemiah because he was a man who, who loved God. And to see this kind of legacy of spiritual strength laying in shambles, that's, that's what the broken down walls of Jerusalem symbolize, squandered strength, which kind of shows the spiritual state of, of, of the guys in, in, in Israel in general. The gates that protected the city were broken down. And here's the deal. When Nehemiah heard about the walls, he was working a cushy job in the Persian government. He was successful, he was secure as a cupbearer to the Persian king, but Nehemiah was deeply committed to God, so instead of actually just you know, complaining or being disturbed by it, he determined to do something. He actually left his job, left his wealth and influence, got on a horse, rode to Jerusalem with one mission in mind, this, to rally and motivate the men of Israel to rebuild the city walls, which would be something of a miracle because it was a huge undertaking. These guys were defeated. They were demoralized. But Nehemiah was a man of action. And the moment he arrived in Jerusalem, you're going to see this, everyone instantly got who was in charge because he's an incredible leader. He organized, managed, supervised, and kind of envisioned the men. He met opposition, but he actually hit it head on, fought back, confronted injustice, and kept going until the walls were built in record time, 52 days, which was pretty much a miracle. But his life shows what God can do through the leadership of one man who is determined to fight, build, and defend that which God gives him. So we're going to look at a slice of his story here from chapter 4, which I think offers really two incredibly practical tools today for men who uh, are looking for a template for their masculine journey. So let's take a look at this. I'll break it down. We'll start at verse 12 here. It says, The Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore... I, Nehemiah, stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. In other words, when he called the men to rebuild these city walls, he said, I want you guys to expect you're going to be attacked by our hostile neighbors. He said, after I looked things over, Nehemiah stood up and said to the nobles and the officials, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight, fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, in your homes. 
Now, when he says, remember the Lord, in other words, he says, in other words, guys, although this is kind of a construction project, this is a spiritual undertaking, first and foremost. The battle may seem to be with spears and swords, but what you're building and fighting for, men, has eternal value. What are they fighting, you know, fighting for? What are, they, what are they doing? Your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your children, people who you are committed to, whom you love. And this is a picture of spiritual leadership. He is casting a vision to the men to build, defend, and fight for other men, women, children, and families. Verse 15 says, When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. And here's the key verse, 17. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And here Nehemiah is introducing men to two very manly man arts, represented by two tools that each guy holds in each hand. In the one hand, he said, I want you guys to carry this. Now, who knows what this is? Anybody have an idea? Most guys at Liquid work in an office. Chris, you know what it is? It is a trowel, okay? If you're a single dude, it's a burger flipper, right? It's a trowel. Most of us understand what it's used for. It's for laying bricks, right? You put a brick down, you spread mortar over it, put another brick on, spread mortar on that. Brick, brick. You build a wall. You build a foundation, a wall, a barrier. That's what a trowel is for. And what the point is, is that about 90% of life is trowel work. It's basic building. Even, even the phys, you know, think of a physical sense, yes, but in the, in the spiritual sense or, or emotional. A man builds a job, a career. He might be called to build a home or a family, a marriage, his kids. He underwrites those by building a business or a church, a ministry, whatever. On a basic level, Nehemiah's like, men are called to what? To trowel work. But building alone isn't all there is, according to Nehemiah. According to verse 17, the men of Israel held what in their other hand? And now we're talking. Game on, right there. Look, what, what's a, what is a sword used for, obviously, right? To fight, defend, ward off. In other words, to protect what you're building. Do you understand this? See, the approach to life, the approaching life with just a trowel isn't enough, according to Nehemiah. Because he says, what a man is building can and will come under attack by those who seek to destroy it. Again, in a spiritual sense, every Christian man who decides he's going to follow Jesus with his life, build a Christian marriage, build a Christian life, he's going to be opposed. Jesus says you're going to be opposed by the thief who comes to rob, steal, destroy. That is Satan. And that's where the sword comes in. God not only instructs his men to do trowel work, building things up for the glory of God, but then how to defend them with a sword as well. To protect and defend what you're building. Whether it is your, your family, your kids, your home, your your ministry. And that's really where we got our series tagline, isn't it? Build, defend, fight. If you haven't done the math by now, this is where we get this from. And Nehemiah shows us God is calling man to be two things. To be both a workman, trowel, and a warrior. Both. Nehemiah 4.18 says this, Each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men or the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when what when he went for water the sword and the trowel two very ancient images that i think pose two critical questions to modern men today men what has god called you to build on the other hand what has he called you to defend how can you best defend and protect 
that which you're building, whether it is a family or a home or your business. And today, I just want to be really, really practical about how to do this. I mean, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking, you know, about the crisis we've seen in, in the masculine culture in our church, in our, in our culture at large. But today, I want to get, like, nitty-gritty practical. Like, how do you, how do you actually, like, use a trowel, trowel one of these? What, what, how do you do that? How do you, how do you wield a sword in these areas in your life? Now, we don't have time for every area of a man's life, so we're going to focus on the three key ones that Nehemiah highlights here. In verse 17, he says this. He says, remember the Lord and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And you see the priorities. He says, remember the Lord. In other words, a man's spiritual life with God is foundational. It is number one. Then he says, fight for your brothers. In other words, how do we build relationships with other men? Two, I want to give you practical tools about Defending your sons and your daughters. In other words, that's for dads, guys who are fathers today. Very appropriate. Your wives and your homes. And the last thing we're going to look at is how do, you, how do you actually build a relationship with a woman? And then how do you fight and defend the marriage or the relationship that you're beginning to build? And these are key areas that will touch on every guy's calling as a warrior for the Lord, but also as a leader in their home. So just look at this first one. The first thing God, uh, man's called to build is a spiritual life with God, his own life. I don't mean being religious, okay? If you're new, that's not religion. I'm talking about having your identity deeply rooted in who you are as a sinful man who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and now you're living as a son of God committed to following Christ even when it's hard. Now, what, it, what is trial work involved in building a spiritual life? It's a lot of things, but here's what it's not just going to church for an hour on Sunday. <laughs> Guys, I'm very, very, very happy you're here, but weekends are not enough. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul said to men, he said, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. The most basic trial work for any man seeking to build a spiritual life with God is learning to feed yourself. That's the number one challenge facing Christian men today, I'm convinced. Spiritual malnourishment. We like to kind of feast on Sunday. Oh, I can't wait. But then it's like a famine the rest of the week. We have more Christian you know, books, sermons, podcasts, shows, music, devotionals, stuff you can download than ever before. But very few men actually take responsibility for their own like study and meditation on Scripture, which is like foundational if you want to grow up in the faith. We all know babies drink milk, but men eat what? Meat, exactly, unless they're a vegan, which in case they're a Methodist. So the men, <laughs> sorry, <I don't, laughs> the men in the Corinthian church, according to Paul, they were like, your guys are a bunch of babies. He's like, you're infants in Christ, which is the place every one of us starts, so there's no condemnation. But he's like, God wants to build you up strong in the faith so you become faithful leaders and husbands and fathers. So what that means is, guys, at some point, you will have to assume responsibility for your own spiritual life and disciplines. Just like you may go to the gym or exercise, you will have to carve out time, regular time to exercise your soul, stretch your mind, and actually expand your heart. For me, uh, this paradigm was, was game-changing for me, and it really has very three easy parts if you're trying to remember this. Divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually. In other words, every day, guys, you need to take dedicated time to reconnect with God by simply reading and meditating on his word. That's how we know what the heart and the mind of God is like. Even if it's 15 minutes when you wake up, before you go to sports center, or whatever it is, you need to divert and read some scripture, reorient your mind around who God is, what his truth says you are, before you like, even lose, uh, leave the house. I'll do this sometimes at like, lunchtime, just 15 minutes. I will take periodically my day to renew my mind. 
You need a regular plan for actually Bible study. Not just, not, again, not just kind of like a you know, uh, reading, but reflecting on Scripture. I keep a journal, kind of praying through what God's teaching me. The second thing I do is withdraw weekly. Every week, a man needs t- extended time in solitude, alone, and in silence. For me, that's very hard. <laughs> Wednesdays and Thursdays are typically when I kind of disappear. A lot of times when I'll write a message, I actually start out just going to a park or to a lake or even to Panera or Bread or something like that, where I spend time, I study God's Word. I'm always looking at stuff that's outside of what I'm talking about here on Sunday. Spend a block of time in prayer, and I'm just being like quick, you know, uh, dear Lord, bless this food and, you know, kind of bless the mess prayers. I mean, wrestle with God. I actually pray about decisions I'm facing, praying for, you know, many of you, walking and, and talking with God. And that's like the, the secret source of strength of everything else that happens. I withdraw for weekly time alone with God. The last thing is the one that I'm kind of excited about, abandon annually. At least once a year, you need to disappear for a few days alone. Just you and God, mano a mano, one-on-one. If you look at the spiritual giants of the faith, Moses, he took his tent to the wilderness. Even Jesus spent 40 days in the desert. Every man needs to have his sword sharpened at least once a year. And usually, I'm not talking about just going to a conference getting all the spiritual high. You need to abandon annually and set some time apart for just seeking the face of God. What, what are his words about his vision for your life? Otherwise, it's going to get filled with a lot of foolish stuff and false voices from the world. Um, this July, I am planning my first ever silent retreat. I'm going away for three days. Just me, my Bible, and my sleeping bag. I'm very, very excited about this. I'm also a little bit nervous. I'm a talker. <laughs> and I'm like, three days of silence. Of just But the reality is, I need to hear from God in a very personal and fresh way. And for him to renew my vision as a man, as a father, as a husband, as a leader of this church. No one can do that for me. So I go and meet with God. And as that creeps closer, guess what? I'm already having to fight for it. Because it's like, oh, you can't go that weekend. Oh, that weekend would be tough. It's not inconvenient. Calendar conflicts will be all over. But every, every bricklayer has a rhythm, right? There's, there's this divert daily, withdraw weekly, abandon annually. Back and forth, back and forth. You build a foundation for a spiritual life, and you learn how to use a trowel. What's not enough is to come to church for an hour a week and expect to grow. <laughs> it's like going to the gym for 15 minutes and being like, oh, yeah, where are the guns, huh? I mean, come on. Here's the deal. Every Sunday, what I'm trying to do up here, I'm trying. I hope to open up God's Word and serve you up a meal that is nice and hot with a little spice thrown in it. (laughs) My hope is that inspires you, stretches you, awakens your appetite, but it's not enough. You weren't meant to feast on Sundays and then starve the rest of the week. You're just not. Hebrews 5 says, Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for who? For the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Notice it says constant use. That's day in, day out consistency. It's like training for a marathon. The spiritual life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And the road is littered with plenty of men who kind of, you know, sprinted out of the gate, but somewhere along they don't finish well. You've got to learn to feed yourself. That's what spiritual maturity is. That doesn't mean, you know, watching a pneuma for five minutes and saying, ah, I had a great time with God. I'm talking extended time, wrestling in prayer, pressing in with him. That's what men do who want to move from milk to meat. I'll give you a practical example without naming names. Uh, here at Liquid, some of my favorite men serve on the roadies team. 
Uh, it takes a certain type of man to get up at 4 a.m. and, you know, stay late to lift thousands of pounds of equipment. Ladies, if you like a muscle man, go to the roadies team. That's where they all are, okay? But there's one dude, honestly, on the roadies who totally inspires me because uh, one night after service, we're kind of cleaning up the stage, we're rolling up the cords, and, uh, and he walks over to me. He doesn't even really say anything. He goes, hey, what's up, Tim? You know, yeah, hey, what's going on? And we're rolling cords. He said, so, uh, so I was reading The Abolition of Man the other day. I was like, the abolition of man, is that, is, that a, is that a band? What is that? Like, I'm trying to remember. I'm like, I heard that somewhere. He's like, no, you know, C.S. Lewis. I was like, oh, yeah, right, of course. I don't know. <laughs> he goes, uh, yeah, I've read the abolition of man. And uh, Lewis made the point that pain is a gift from God. You know, that, like the cross means that actually even unjust suffering in this life is one of the best ways we become like Christ. What, what, what's your sense of that? And I'm rolling chords, <laughs> and they're blasting ACDC overhead, Okay. <laughs> And I thought, now here is a rare man. This is a man among men, okay? I won't tell you his name, but this guy is no geek. He's a, he's a muscular dude. He has a girlfriend. He works with his hands. He rides a cycle. And what does he do on his lunch break, apparently? He reads Christian apologetics. <laughs> he reads C.S. Lewis. And that was a challenge to me. I was like, my goodness, I don't think I've read that book since college. And, and that was a, that's spiritual maturity, guys. It's a guy who feeds his mind and his heart outside of Sunday, Moving from milk, the basics of the Christian life, to meat, the deeper stuff. You can't just feed off what God is teaching me, for instance. What's he teaching you? You've got to do your own trowel work. What you also have to do is learn how to wield a sword. Because if you're serious about building your spiritual life, you will be attacked, guaranteed. In Nehemiah, it says, from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with what? Spears, shields, bows, and armor. In other words, Nehemiah kept the men together as a fighting unit because he realized a guy out there, isolated all alone, is easy target for the enemy. You need men, brothers, to fight with. You know, in the construction of, of the spiritual life, I think there are a lot of guys who are do-it-yourselfers. But in the garden, think about this, we go back to Genesis, the only thing declared not good is for the man to what? To be alone. And that's why Nehemiah calls out the need for spiritual brothers and fathers. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man does what? He sharpens another. From the early church on, guys, community has played a decisive role in man's spiritual formation. That's why we have life groups. We've got some great groups. Lou and the, and the guys meet down at the coffee shop on Tuesdays. Derek has a group on, on, on uh, you know, pray. They, there's something about praying with other men actually opening your life, being accountable to other men, having spiritual friendships, studying together, encouraging. It's, it's, it's this iron sharpens iron metaphor. Spiritual fathers are like mentors or coaches. Everybody can use a Christian man who is a little bit ahead of you on the journey. So, for instance, just to give you a practical example. If you're single and you want to be married, you know what? Find a married dude and ask him for coffee. If you're older, you see a young dude kind of floundering, vice versa. A guy did this last week. He came to see me, and it was amazing. I was so surprised because he wanted actually my you know, advice about a girl. I didn't have a ton to give him, but, he, but I was surprised because he hadn't already made up his mind. Most guys I meet with, quite honestly, they don't want the truth. They want the blessing or an endorsement for what they're about to do. <laughs> the church needs spiritual mentors and coaches. And personally, this is probably like the biggest thing for my own spiritual growth. Uh, for the last five years, I've had coaching relationships with three older pastors who are older than me by at least two decades they are way smarter they are wiser in the journey they have experience and when i meet with them i like soak it up like a sponge they mentor me it is very humbling it is grounding 
and probably the greatest way I've grown as a leader because there's something about that discipline of actually being in the presence of another man that draws out the best in a younger man, mentoring, coaching. Behind every great man is typically a greater man showing him the ropes. So trowel work is about self-feeding. That's the basics of the spiritual life, Bible study, prayer, tithing, honoring God with your money. Sword work is about coaching and community. That's how you will actually stand strong when attacked. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. That is a myth. Nehemiah brings the men together to fight for each other, speak courage to one another, and carry each other's burdens. What's the point? You will not become a spiritual warrior overnight, guys. It's a lot of little things carried out over time with a lot of consistency. Remember the Lord, Nehemiah says, and fight for your brothers. And then he says, fight for your sons your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And boy, there is a lot there, isn't there? But he's speaking to fathers and husbands about having a relationship with, with, with women, with children. And again, let me be very, very practical here. A man's relationship with a woman. Why do we talk so much about that? We're not obsessed about it. But biblically, it is the number one reflection in this world of Christ's love for his bride, the church. Number one. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, Love your wives just as who? Just as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. When it comes to building a relationship with a woman, guys, that's our model, men. <laughs> what did Christ do for his bride? He gives up his literal life to serve, love, and indeed save her. I spent some time talking with my, uh, my wife, Colleen, this week. I said, you got to get real practical here. I said, we're talking trowel work. What are the basic things that I do that build our marriage and really mean a lot to you. Be totally honest. And her answer surprised me. She said, oh, that's easy, the three Ds. I was like, the three Ds? Oh, boy, here it comes. <laughs> she goes, no, it means the world to me. She goes, it means that you're, that you're home for dinner. She goes, most nights of the week, that's like huge for me. It means the world to me that you're a daddy to the kids. And the third thing that means the world to me is that you pick up the dog do. That's how you say love. <laughs> that's like, and now I'm going to get to that in a minute because you're like, what? She said, to start with dinner. She said, no matter what happens, she goes, you're typically home four or five nights a week, and, and that's a choice, that's a priority for us, because that's where we reconnect. We debrief with our kids. Like, what was the best part of school? We tell jokes, we laugh a lot, we love to eat and laugh at our, at our house. We have, we have serious conversation, too. It was amazing. Last uh, week during dinner, Chase says this the other night. She goes, um, at, she goes, at school today, one of my classmates said, a man and a woman don't have to be married to have a baby. Is that true, Daddy? <laughs> okay let's talk <laughs> being home for dinner for us represents a lot to my wife what it means is I set limits on my work I have, I have limited you know meetings and outside speaking and stuff because I know right now we're in that stage of life where like just my presence has a huge impact so I am home a lot it also means to Colleen in her words she says that, that, that I'm a daddy an active father to the kids what she means is she doesn't feel alone um, you guys know I've been blessed with both a son and a daughter. I talk about them all the time. I know you're probably sick of it. Oh, what cute kids. They're, they're, I don't want to hear any more about them. Sorry, they're my kids. I'm talking. Uh, Dell's six years old. Chase is turning eight, and um, they're my joy, my heart. You know, that's why I talk about them. They're my delight. I love those kids. Uh, one of the fruits of marriage is children. And, and I don't, as I think about this, I don't really know of any sword and trowel work more critical than being a father. I mean, to have like a son look up to you 
to see what a man is like, or a daughter who looks to you to see what to look for in a man, both are very daunting tasks when I think about the charge of Nehemiah. Like, what do I do intentionally to build each of these kids up? What's the daily trial work I do? And what, and what do I do to fight for them, right? This is, this is on-the-job training. There are no parenting classes, are there? It's a scandal. They should have licenses for people before they have kids. For different for boys and for girls. Uh, in, my, in fact, this is, uh, let, me, let me change course here and give you a different metaphor. In my world, the best symbol is not a sword and a trowel for parenting boys and girls. In my house, the best, um, the best uh, symbols for that would be these two items. I don't know if you can see what this thing is. It is a whip and a wand. This is what two kids in my house use. You want to guess whose is whose here, okay? My little boy loves Indiana Jones. He loves whips, lightsabers, swords, guns, anything that can be used as a weapon. Whoosh! This actually has a button. He's worn it out. It, when he presses it, it goes, whoosh! And he comes in and chases the dog. My daughter, on the other hand, she, has, she loves princesses, she loves ponies, she loves little pet shop Barbie, basically anything pink and dainty, she loves. And so what does trial work look like with each of these kids? It's very, very different. Dell loves to battle daddy. We wrestle, we fight, we play Legos. We play good guys and bad guys, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and we climb trees, we chuck balls, we catch frogs. Then like Lenny, we hold them and squeeze them and love them and hug them and we're a little too tight sometimes. That's his love language. Anything physical, dangerous, or dirty. Chase is the opposite. What does daddy do with Chase? We play princess. We sing songs. We color. We paint. We have dance parties. She is a girl's girl. She wanted to paint my toes the other day. And I just roll with it because I'm a spiritual giant. She gets that from her mama, but she's also a daddy's girl. It's one, of the, it's one of the ways I'm laying a foundation with her, okay? Every night I get into bed with her for at least 10 minutes for snuggle time with daddy. Do you know what we do? We snuggle and we talk about her day. I say, well, Chase, what's, what's got you excited? What, what's got her anxious? And then you know what we do? We say our prayers together. She loves praying with daddy and snuggling in there. Why? Because daddy's strength reassures her. It makes her feel safe and secure and protected. One time she took her little wand and actually tapped me on the head and she says, Daddy, you're my Prince Charming. Doop. My son wants to chop my head off, okay? <laughs> but it's fine because they're just role-playing at this age. They are rehearsing the roles they will play as adults, okay? Dell, as a boy, he wants to test his strength. He wants to go on an adventure. He wants to rescue the princess and beat the bad guy. And take a guess who the bad guy usually is. I am like, uh, in, in our world, I'm a cross between Darth Vader and the Nazis, the whole thing. And so he loves to beat on Daddy, and we're like, all right, how do we channel this whole whip thing? So I read him Bible stories. We read the other day how Jesus cleared the temple with a whip, and he's like, oh, I like Jesus. <laughs> he's, he's totally an Old Testament dude, because like the battles, the blood, Exodus man, that is his book, like plagues, like water turning to blood, frogs from him. He's like, Bible is awesome. So we read, when I get into his bed, we read Bible stories at night. And that's a big deal. We pray together because it's communicating. Daddy's the spiritual leader. Sometimes I actually say, Dad, I'm not going to pray for you tonight. Could you pray for me? I've got to write a sermon tomorrow, and I, I, I need help from God because I want him to know Daddy relies on God. And all this mixes up in his head, okay? King David, Daddy, Indiana Jones, it all mixes in his mind. He thinks Harrison Ford is Jesus, okay? 
Right now, the big lesson I'm teaching my son, trial work, is you only use your whip on bad guys. Never mom, never chase. You don't ever raise a hand or anything towards women. And when Del forgets that, I get to use the whip. Uh, not really, but I am teaching him that one of the things his strength is for is actually to protect women against bad men. And uh, this is kind of funny because uh, Del loves Egypt, so I took him and Chase to the King Tut exhibit in New York City. Did you see that? It's awesome. It's fantastic. Um, it was awesome because he wore his Indiana Jones hat. He wore a fedora. He brought his whip. He was in his glory. And afterwards, we go to the gift shop, shop where all the King Tut stuff is, and Chase starts trying on princess jewels and crowns. And I put on Pharaoh's headdress. And, uh, and I, I sneak up from behind, and I grab Chase by the shoulders. And as I do that, I hear across from the gift shop, I hear, da-da-da-da, and he comes running across the gift shop with his whip going, don't touch her, don't touch her, let that girl go, you know, and all these people turn and look like I'm like this guy trying to abduct this kid, and I'm like, no, she's my daughter, and he's like, get off her, get off her, and I was just like, and I was just like stop, stop, relax, he's just like, I'm driving you from the temple, daddy, and he's whipping and everything, and I couldn't punish the kid because he was just being biblical. The point is, guys, the whip and the wand. God made them male and he made them female. And you know what? That's the trowel work of parenting. It's about dinner and baths and playtime and Bible stories and a million other things where my presence is decisive. They can't articulate it. But my presence, in some way, it reassures them that I am always there for them. I'm there to help unearth their, their, their God-given glory, like what their interests and gifts and passions are. And it means everything to Colleen um, that I'm an engaged father because she's not alone. She's got a partner to actually help lay the bricks. Trowel work is exhausting. But dads, you need to know how to use a trowel and use your sword too to protect your children. Del comes home the other day and he tells me about a movie he saw at his friend's house on a play date. He starts describing the scene. He's like, yeah, and then these zombies went in and shot him in the eyeballs. I'm like, what? He tells me the name of the movie, and you know, it's like, it's like PG-13, and he says, yeah. And then this guy says to this girl, and he uses the word, uh, the word witch, with, but it starts with a B. And I hear this thing, and me and Colleen were on that thing like flies on rice. We called the mom, and we found out his buddy has older brothers from high school who were also over for a play date. So guess what? Play dates are now at the Lucas house. That's sword work. You protect your kids' innocence. Do you know who their friends are? That's, that's one of the ways you actually defend them, guys. If your daughter is going to a friend's house, well, who's home? Is mom home? Dad? Who else? Oh, the older brother with his pothead friends. Men, that is your job. You defend your daughter. It's not just mom's job. Nehemiah says you fight for her. That's one of the reasons right now, uh, the big thing is I take Chase on a lot of daddy-daughter dates. It's one of the favorite things we do. Uh, I leave work, I take her out of school, we go out to lunch, I pay the bill. Uh, we went to New York City on one, we took a pedicab ride through Central Park, we fed the geese, we actually went to dinner, she picked top of the rock, she's pretty high maintenance for a seven-year-old, and um, we sit there and we talk about stuff, I tell her she's beautiful, and do you know why I do that? You know why I do that? It's not because I'm a great dad, but I do that so she knows what a man is supposed to look and act like before she gets to high school and the first punk with a fake ID comes along. I'm like, I got that sucker beat by 20 years. I pity the fool who takes her on her first date. I love it. It's going to be like ding dong and I'm going to answer the door with one of these. And then if that doesn't intimidate enough, her brother's going to be like, da 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 you know, coming across the thing. <laughs> Build your kids. Do the trowel work 
and unsheath your sword. You draw boundaries. You protect your sons and daughters. It's your job. Colleen said to me the three Ds. I'm home from dinner. I'm engaged as a dad. And uh, it was hilarious that she said. I was like, are you serious? She goes, when you use that third tool to pick up the dog do, I feel like you love me. And there's very great spiritual significance behind this. This isn't just a goof. I do the dirty work around our house. I am not a talented guy. So picking up the poop is one of my spiritual gifts. I do a couple of things like that. I take out the garbage. Colleen, I don't know why she's like anal about that. It's Tuesday, the recycling has to be out. You know? And I'm like, all right, I'll do it. And I, and I don't get that. And I was like, why is this such a big deal for you? And she says, when you act like a man, it makes me feel like more of a woman. I was like, tell me about that. She goes, you being masculine makes, makes me feel more feminine. And I am not that handy, but I'm willing. And it means everything to her. Husbands, do you know what your wife's love language is? There's, there's, there's a book out there, The Five Love Languages. Colleen's my wife. It's, it's awesome because it's acts of service. Early on, I would get her flowers. I'd get her candy. She's like, no, thank you, no, thank you. Jewelry, no, thank you. This, major turn on in my house. I do the dirty work or anything else that makes her feel feminine. Promptness, I have learned, counts. A few weeks ago, um, one of our window screens popped out on like, the second floor, and Colleen was like, hey, can you fix that? And I was like, oh, absolutely, no problem. But I was on man time. You know how that works? <laughs> you know, it sits there against the wall for about three weeks, and I walk by, and I'm like, yeah, i got to fix that thing. You know? And she's just like, she's like, oh, come on, you know, and do, do it, and left me little reminders, but I didn't do it. So sure enough, I walk outside, and there she is like, trying to get it in there, and she looks like on the ladder. She's gonna, I'm like, what are you doing? She's just like, I got put this in. I told you I'd do that. You don't take care of things. What do you mean I take care of everything? And she felt unloved. Now I feel disrespected. We know about this. Some marriages go through that cycle. Love and respect for years and years. It's the little stuff. Promptness counts. So now I do stuff right away because it shows you're a priority to me. I know it's a big deal to you. It doesn't matter to me. That's trial work. It's foundational. It's the bricks and mortars of building a relationship. Now, sword work is different because a marriage reflects the love of Christ. It's constantly under attack. And I go on the offensive at times and fight for my marriage. And if, I just do a few very basic things. Like for one of the things I do, I'm very intentional about scheduling romantic getaways. Pretty much we uh, do this every uh, three or four months. I go away for romantic tryst with my wife. <laughs> the reason is I don't want to become just friends or buddies or roommates or co-parents. I would like to stay lovers. That's how we met. Proverbs 5.18 says, May your fountain be blessed. And that's actually a metaphor for reproductive organs. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. In other words, may you always kindle that early romance that first brought you two together. For us, that's passionate one-on-one -on -one time without the kids. We've got to have it. In the Song of Solomon, it's kind of fun because the woman says to the man, she says, catch for me the little foxes who ruin our vineyard. And I'm like, I know their names. Those kids will eat the leaves off your tree if you let them. So you have to get away together. Uh, I just scheduled my next getaway with Colleen. Uh, we're going to, for a couple of nights down the shore. My parents take the kids. And it's great because it's like our little secret. You know, the kids are like counting down to the end of school. And Colleen and I are like, oh, yeah, we can't wait either. You know, we send like little naughty texts like, I'll see you in six days, that kind of thing. I used to be very reactive early in our relationship. You know what I mean, guys? You like wait until the red light comes on the dashboard. Like, whoa, blow out. We better get away together. Why not do that like in advance? <laughs> Now I am very proactive. In fact, when I scheduled our, our getaway um, just as school ends, the reason is because it means our kids will now be home 24-7, which is going to take a lot out of her. 
So I preemptively pour into the woman before that happens. I will take her out to dinner while we're away, somewhere nice, not Applebee's, or any place with like a screen overhead. That's like a generally a good rule, guy, no screens. She'll pick the movie, we will sleep late, we will lounge, and we will get back to Eden where it began. The man and the woman were naked, and there was no shame. The kids will complain when we leave. No, we don't leave us. But when we come back, they love it. Because, Daddy, you're different. I know. I'm not using the sword as much, am I? You're sweeter, Mommy. Yeah, Mommy and Daddy are better when they have Mommy-Daddy time. I cultivate romance. And when conflict happens, which it does a lot, I fight fair. Most of the couples whom I talk with, whose marriage is in a death spiral, have no idea how to fight fair or resolve conflict. Instead of, instead of actually turning the sword on their common enemy, they turn it on each other. Oh, you're in for it. Newsflash. Marriage is hard. Christian marriage is harder. And here's the truth. You will hurt each other's feelings. You will step on toes. You will slight, insult, disrespect, be selfish, intentionally sometimes, or just through neglect of others. But when you fight, you have to fight for your marriage and not fight your spouse. He or she is not the enemy. One of the ways the devil gains a foothold and puts actually a wedge in the marriage is through unresolved conflict. Listen, uh, low, you know, that like low-level static that lingers and never gets resolved. Ephesians 4.26 says this. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, and don't give the devil what? A foothold. So Paul's writing to two people who sleep together. Don't let the sun actually go down. And the principle, never go to bed angry, has served us well. We are like every other couple, sinful couple. We fight, we fuss, we disagree, we argue. It's natural. It's what you do in the wake of that, which is supernatural. Grace is decisive. The ability to actually not only say, you know what, I'm sorry when wrong, but move beyond the like, I'm right, you're wrong, or you're wrong, I'm right, and actually go to God. Ask him for correction, even if you're the one in the right. You're mostly right, but what has to change in you? Colleen actually said to me as we were talking about this this week, it was, it was kind of a nice moment because I've, this has been a hard area for me. She said, you know what? She goes, you know what it is? She said, I, I now trust you when we argue, Tim. I, I actually trust you now because I know you won't actually steamroll me anymore. <laughs> I, I know you actually, when you say, all right, let's pray about it, you actually do go and pray because you come back, you're, you're changed, and it makes a difference. I trust you. Early in our marriage, I would go on the offense because I was taught that is the best defense. <laughs> and guys, I've said it before. You win an argument, you lose every time. <laughs> I don't fight my wife anymore. I fight for our marriage. That is a mega mind shift for a lot of folks because if the enemy can get you angry and bitter and disillusioned and chronically disappointed with your partner, he can get at the kids, and then sooner or later, it will sour your relationship with God. That's how it works. The final sword thrust for a man, quite honestly, in this area is fidelity or faithfulness, sexual integrity. And that transcends whether you're single or married. If you're going to stay faithful to God, to a woman in our hypersex culture, guess what? It's going to be a battle. My anchor verse for this is Job 31, verse 1, which he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. You guys know what a covenant is? It's a boundary. It's a, it's a hedge, an agreement put in place against anything that threatens your integrity. And to defend my marriage, I have several boundaries in place, kind of like a covenant that I've made. One of them is I avoid late-night media. I don't watch a ton of late-night television because the stuff on there is insane. 
I don't surf the web late at night. I avoid men's magazines. Those ones that I showed you, I gave them right to Colleen. I said, congratulations, here you go. She's like, ooh, what are these for? I was like, you get rid of them. I don't even want to open it. Colleen is my standard of beauty, so I don't go there. Here's another covenant, a hedge I put in there. I don't meet one-on-one with single women. It's not because I'm afraid, but it's out of respect for my wife. She knows that it really puts her at ease. I will actually refer ladies to other women on staff or a Christian counselor. You know why? Because I'm like, I'm not going to be that guy. I grew up with Jimmy Swagger and Jim Baker and Ted Haggard, and I'm not going to end up in a hotel room with a gal or some dude in, you know, in a hotel room. So I put up safeguard. That's, that's, that's sword work, okay? It's not being anal. If you're single, this may sound very quaint, but you need to save yourself for one woman because God designed you to offer her integrity and strength, not compromise and weakness, not just hanging out and hooking up, but actually being a man and taking responsibility for safeguarding your girlfriend's purity. That's God's daughter, and you guard the integrity of the relationship. You understand this? Whether you're single or married, guys, it's not easy. It is all around us. That's why I have guys, I have other men in my life who keep me accountable. They have access to my laptop. They can look at my browser. I'm an open book. And we badly want to help other guys who struggle too. Honestly, that's why we've made uh, this uh, list of men's resources available. This is kind of cool. You can pick this up at the Welcome Center. This card we produced is full of the top five resources in a man's battle for sexual integrity. Uh, Many of them are free, including our own Porn in the Bible podcast, which has been downloaded from iTunes now over 700,000 times. We put it up there for free, 700,000 times downloaded. So if you are getting your butt kicked in this area, you're not alone. Welcome to the club. We're here to help. Pick this card up at the Welcome Center, and by all means, join the fight. Don't just roll over. You have other guys learning sword work in this area too. In fact, we're going to be talking about this some more at our men's uh, barbecue on Saturday, July third after the man-made outreach. I I could go on about this, but I think you guys get the point. Sword and trowel. God calls man to be a workman and a warrior. Nehemiah was both. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he said, remember the Lord and fight. Fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And he took out his trowel and he strapped on his sword and he called other men to do the same. My question is, what will you do first? What one step is God calling you to take today? Maybe it's just picking up that porn resource card at the Welcome Center. Maybe it's actually approaching an older man about mentoring. Dudes, maybe it's just scheduling a date with your wife. Are you ready to man up? You have to unsheath the sword. You have to let people feel the weight of your masculinity. Men of liquid, to this you were called. Build, defend, and fight. If you're with me, no amen. Say hooah. Hooah. Father, right now I pray for all of these men, Father, with a trowel in one hand, a sword in the other, Father. These are powerful, powerful symbols of lost arts. Today, Father, I ask that you would raise up warriors across all of our campuses, Father, men who would reach out to other men and begin showing them what masculinity is, not because we're perfect role models, but because we have a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your sword work on the cross by which you put to death sin and Satan and death forever through your life. Lord, we want to be men who actually shine 
brightly in a very dark world. And I pray for your grace to do that. Fill these men with your Holy Spirit. Bless our outreach on July as we serve women in your name. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said together, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Audio. If this message has touched you, we'd love to know how. Just email Pastor Dave Adamson at churchonline at liquidchurch.com. For more information and content or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com.